Well, let's open God's Word this morning to Genesis chapter 3. And we're going to resume our study in the book of Genesis, which is the book of Origins. And today we'll see in our text the origin of sin. This is where we come in Scripture to find out when sin entered the human race and how that happened, the temptation that took place. And uh, we'll see uh, in these nine verses, these first nine verses of Genesis chapter 3, we'll see how sin came into the human race. So let's read our text. It says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? And so we see here how sin first infected the human race. And we see the beginning of what it cost man. There was a high price to be paid for what happened that day in the garden. And all we're going to see today is just the beginning of that. But as we study the rest of the book of Genesis, it will play out in front of us the tremendous high price of sin. Uh, we will see dysfunctional families. We will see uh, murder. We will see uh, broken homes. We will see relationships that are mended. All types of violence, war. Uh, at one point, uh, God has to destroy all of mankind in the flood except for Noah and his family. Uh, a God at the Tower of Babel had to disperse uh, men and, and confuse their language because of their plotting uh, to... Uh, take over his place. And so we see a lot of things here uh, that begin right here where we uh, have just read. The, the, the troubles that are in our lives today can be traced directly back to this passage of Scripture, whatever those troubles are. And I think it would be good for us just to remind ourselves the good place that man was in before this. Just one more time, let's just remember what we saw in chapters 1 and 2. Man was in a perfect physical environment. It was a place of beauty. It was a place of comfort. It was a place of a companionship that Adam and Eve had together there in the garden. But more than that, it was a place of perfect spiritual uh, fellowship with God, uh, their Creator. Uh, we're going to see that they, they recognized when God came walking in the garden, they recognized the sound of that because it was something that they had heard before. It was something that they heard uh, every day. 
But it was all lost, all of that, all of the goodness of God toward man. God had, God had made things so good for man. He had the perfect environment. And right in the midst of that perfect environment, he sins against God. If you look back up in chapter 2 and look in verses uh, 16 and 17, and you'll see the commandment that they violated uh, in this sin. The Lord God made man, and then he commanded the man saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And so the fall of mankind into sin, the sin of Adam, would impact not only his life and Eve's life, but his sin would have devastating consequences for the entire human race all through history right up till our day. Now, this was a true event. This is an historic account. This is not a myth, just like we talked about with the creation. This is not myth. This is not legend. It's not any other kind of literature. This is an historic account of what happened uh, on this particular day. And we have to understand it that way because Jesus refers back to this time in the New Testament and other places in Paul's writing and in other writings it refers back to this time and it refers to it as an actual historical events. So we don't have the privilege, if we believe the Word of God, if we are people who believe, God, believe God's Word, we have to take this as a true historical event. So I want us to see this morning how it all unfolded. And we start in verses 1 through 5, and I want you to see deception. Deception. And it says there in verse 1, Now the serpent was more cunning, that word just means subtle, or crafty, shrewd. He was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And so right away in this section of Scripture, we're confronted with something that we have to make a decision about. And that is that we're confronted with a talking snake, talking serpent. And the world would mock us for believing in something like that, it almost seems to them like some type of fairy tale. And they think that we are, those of us who are believers in our Bible, believe that the Bible is true. Uh, they, they would mock us for believing something like this. But I tell you, I'm, I'm a lot like the little boy. You may have heard about him. He went to Sunday school, and their Sunday school lesson that Sunday morning was about uh, Jonah and the whale, the large fish. And he came home and at dinner with his parents that afternoon, he said, you know, I just don't know if I can believe that, 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 a, that a large fish could swallow a man. And uh, so his, his mom and dad said, well, son, don't you believe that God could make a fish that could swallow a man? And he said, well, if you want to bring God into it, <laughs> well, let's bring God into it. We're here this morning. We're here to worship him. We've got his book open before us. I have no problem. If I believe that God can speak the universe into existence, I can believe that he made a talking serpent to talk to Eve that day in the garden. Amen? And so it's really not that difficult unless you want to make it difficult. Now the serpent, it talks about the serpent. It says that he was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. But there's something that we need to understand about this serpent. And of course we do understand it from our previous Bible study, that this was not just a serpent. This was a serpent that had become possessed by Satan himself, by the devil. And we know that because of verses that are elsewhere in the Scripture. 
Let me just read them to you. Revelation chapter 12 verse 9 says, So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. In Revelation 22 it says, He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. Now the word devil, it comes from the word in the Greek language, diabolos. And we get our word diabolical from that, but it's a word which just means a slanderer. He's a slanderer. He says things that aren't true. He's the father of lies. He's the father of all lies. He's a liar and the father of lies. And then the name Satan means the accuser. And so what we're going to see here in this temptation of Eve in the garden is that he fulfills both of those definitions. He's a slanderer. He's going to slander God to Eve. He's going to accuse God of some things to Eve. And this serpent then has been possessed by Satan himself. Now Satan had fallen. He had rebelled against God already and a number of the angels with him. And we find uh, two places in Scripture where that is spoken about, and I want us to turn and look at those uh, this morning. So if you would turn with me to Isaiah chapter 14. Now hold your place here, of course, in uh, Genesis 3. But in Isaiah 14, in verses 12 through 15, we see a description here. This is a prophecy that is against the king of Babylon. And so the chapter begins out with this prophecy against the king of Babylon, but suddenly in the middle of this prophecy that Isaiah is making, it shifts and it begins to talk about someone who could not have been the king of Babylon. And it's about Satan himself. And so let's look at it here in Isaiah 14. It says, How you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the further sides of the north. And I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. There was the sin of of Satan, the rebellion of Satan against God. He said, I will be like the Most High, yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest parts of the pit. And so that's obviously speaking about more than just the uh, king of Babylon. That's a, that's, a, that's a prophecy that speaks about Satan and it tells how Satan fell, how Satan fell from heaven. And then turn to Ezekiel 28, just a few pages over. Ezekiel 28, starting in verse 14. And here you have a prophecy that was made against the king of Tyre. And it starts out just like there in Isaiah, it starts out with a prophecy against this king. But beginning in verse 14, the the tone, the whole um, gravity of it shifts to a being. It's a prophecy obviously about a being that would be far more than the king of Tyre. And it says there in verse 14, it says, You were the anointed cherub. And that word cherub just means an angelic being. And so that 
That's a description of Satan. He was the, the anointed cherub who covers. And that word just means that he was a, a one who was close. He was close to the throne of God. On a daily basis at one point in heaven, Satan, as the anointed cherub, was one who was there on a daily basis, or, or on a continual basis, we should say, right beside the throne of God. No one could be any closer to God uh, in, than, than he was at that time. It says, I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created. And so Satan was a created uh, being. Till iniquity was found in you. And by the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within, and you sinned. Therefore I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. And then here's where it gets real direct about uh, being a, uh, the, the being of Satan and, and what he, how he sinned and rebelled against God. He said, your heart, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. Now there is the, the mixture there of the prophecy against the king of Tyre. But right in the midst of that is the prophecy speaking uh, directly of Satan. And Jesus said this about Satan in Luke ten eighteen. He said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And then in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3, Paul said this as he wrote to the Corinthians. He said, But I fear, lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. And so this exchange that, we, that we're going to see in these next few verses between, uh, between the, the uh, serpent and between Eve, it is actually a serpent that has been possessed by Satan himself. Now, we know her name is Eve because when we come to verse 20 in this chapter, that's what Adam is going to give her is her name. So as I refer to her, I'm just going to refer to, to Eve because it's uh, just how we know her from Scripture. But if you look at what it says next, there in verse 1, it says, He said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now, I want you to notice how subtle that is. He, he's very crafty with the words and the way he worded it. And he, he designed his words here to cast doubt on the goodness of God. God had told Adam... And he had told Eve through Adam that they could eat of every tree of the garden. That's what God's told him. He said, you can eat of every tree of the garden. It's all yours except for the tree that's in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. From that one tree, you cannot eat of it. But Satan takes those words and he puts a twist on it, which is what Satan likes to do. He likes to to put a twist on God's Word, to create doubt in the hearts of men about God's Word. And he said, he, he called into question, he, he said, did God say you may eat of every tree of the garden? 
And Satan is accusing God here. He's saying God is holding back on you. God is restricting you and confining you. He's limiting your freedom. That's ultimately what he's saying. He's, he's, he's taken something to where God was so good. And God had blessed man so abundantly. But he's making it out as if somehow God is doing something against man. When every intention of God was for man's goodness. Now we see Eve's response. She responded pretty well here except for one thing. And we'll point that out. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden. So she knew that. She'd been taught that most likely by Adam, and she may have heard it directly from God herself. But of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it. And God had said that. But then she adds something here. She says, Nor shall you touch it, lest you die. So she understood, she had a pretty good understanding of what God had said. But there's a problem. And the problem is this. When God gives us His Word, He gives us His Word in just the words that He wants to give it to us in. And we have no right whatsoever to change any of His words, certainly to take away from any of His words, or to add anything to the words that He's given us. And she adds these words, nor shall you touch it, to that. Now we don't know where she came to that. It could have been, it could have been that Adam said, look, we're not to eat of it, so let's just don't even touch it. And that's, there's some safety in that. There would be some safety in that understanding. But the problem is, that's not what God had said. Dr. David Skinner And his commentary on this section says that what Satan had done at this point is that he had planted the seed of doubt into the heart and into the mind of Eve. And it was about to sprout and bear fruit. In verse 4 it says, Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. And so he ups the game here. He takes it from doubting God's word, trying to plant a little doubt in her heart and mind about God's Word, to now directly disputing God's Word. Then look in verse 5. Look at what Satan says here. It says, For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And again, he accuses God of holding back on them for his own selfish purposes, the slanderer. The accuser is what he's doing. You know, this is exactly the strategy that Satan uses with us. He wants to do anything he can to get us to doubt God's Word and to doubt God's goodness so that we will declare our independence of God and do things the way we want to do it. And if you just think about sins, maybe some sin that you struggle with really and truly That's what it comes down to. It comes down to unbelief, not believing what God has said about it. Not believing that there will be more pain than pleasure ultimately from the sin. And so they they were not believing God's Word. And Romans 14, 23 says, Whatever is not of faith is sin. 
Now the question comes up, why did he attempt to deceive Eve and not Adam? Well, maybe he thought that since Adam was the one who had heard the command directly from God, that he would be the one that would be least likely to be deceived. That's, that's possible. But what we see in this text is that Adam, when he was confronted with the opportunity to make a choice, he, he caved in immediately. So he didn't, do, he didn't even do as good as Eve did. If you really look at it, he did, did worse. And the question is, where was Adam in all of this? And I've always thought that, you know, that, that Eve was just there with the serpent, with Satan, having this conversation that Adam was off somewhere else in the garden. But we're going to find out, I believe, that, he, that Adam was right near. I believe he heard the entire conversation. And we'll show you why in just a minute. And so first of all, the fall of man into sin begins with the deceptive uh, temptation of Satan. And then we come to verse 6, which is one of the most impactful and devastating verses in all of the Word of God. And in verse 6, we see disobedience. Disobedience. And it says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Now there's a pattern here that's repeated in Scripture many times. And I just want to lay it out for you. Uh, it's good for food, it says. That speaks about the lust of the flesh, the physical appetites. Pleasant to the eyes. That is, there's the lust of the eyes. You see something and you want it. That's what the advertisers on television and everywhere else, that's, that's what they take advantage of. You see something, you don't have it, you want it. The lust of the eyes. And then that it was desirable to make one wise. And here you have the pride of life. Those three things. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And we see that in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. Just listen to this while I read it. Do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and here it is, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And that's how Satan tries to make his inroads in our lives, by those, in those three areas. The, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. When Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness... He tempted him in three ways. He, he tempted him to turn the stones into bread. That's the appeal to the lust of the flesh. He tempted him to, to want the kingdoms of the world. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world at one time. That was a, an appeal to the lust of the eyes. And then he took him up to the pinnacle of the temple and he said, Cast yourself down. If you're the Son of God, uh, he'll, God will save you. He won't let you dash your foot upon a stone. That's the, the temptation to the pride of life. And folks, we got we got Satan's game plan right there in front of us right there. We need to be aware of that. That, that Satan's temptations come to those three areas of our life and, and the world, he holds up the world in front of us in in that way. Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. He talks about this, he says, For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. 
His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. Jesus, of course, passed the test with flying colors against Satan. After, after Satan tempted him on every one of those three occasions, he quoted Scripture back to Satan, and it says that Satan left him for, until a more convenient season. But what had happened here with Eve is that Satan had worn her down. And this is really this phrase where it says she took of its fruit and ate. This is where adding anything to the Word of God could be dangerous. Because it could be, listen, listen to this, it could be that she touched the fruit first. Obviously she would have touched the fruit first. And she said, well, I didn't die. And so that enabled her then to take, partake of the fruit. And so it's perhaps a, perhaps a twisted understanding just by adding those words to, to God's words that would have caused her to partake of the fruit and, and to bring uh, the penalty of sin upon them. But you'll notice that she also gave to her husband with her. That's what the scripture says. He was with her. And it could be that he was there the whole time. And God had put him in charge of the garden. He had, he had told him to guard the garden. He had told him to, to, to look over it and to tend it and to keep it and to guard it. And here was Satan himself talking to his wife. And you know what he should have said? He should have said what any godly man of the house should have said. He should have said, you get out of here. Or I'll go get my hoe, and that'll be the end of, of you. And he should have taken Eve and said, let's move, let's go somewhere else. But he failed the test. He didn't say a word. He didn't say a word at any point. And when she gave him the fruit, another opportunity that he could have just objected and said, no, we're not to do this. He, he could have gone to God and said, God, do something here. Do something about this. But he took it and ate it. He gave no protest he saw that Eve didn't die. Somebody put it like this in one of the commentaries. He said, like a good, obedient husband, he ate what was put in front of him. And he may have been right there with her the whole time and never said a word. 1 Timothy 2.14 says this. It says, Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. And so we see their disobedience. And the greater disobedience was the disobedience of Adam, not Eve. We men like to, put, we like to say, oh, it's all Eve's fault. But the reality of it is, is that God had given the command to Adam. He was the spiritual head of his home. He should have offered spiritual protection for Eve at that moment. He should have been alert to what was taking place and stopped the whole process. But he didn't. Along with his wife. He disobeyed, and the greater sin was his. And we see that when we come to the final point of the message today, and that is death in verses 7 through 9. Death. There's deception, there's disobedience, and now we'll see death. God had said in that commandment, He said, In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. But they didn't die that day, at least not physically. 
After they ate the fruit, you could just imagine that first moment after they partook of the fruit, they were looking at one another and saying, we're still alive. And as the day went along on into the afternoon, they, they were still alive, physically still alive. They were wondering, that God had said, on that day that you eat of it, you will die. And the day ended, and the sun set. They were still alive physically. But some things did happen that day. They didn't die physically that day. But there was a death that took place for Adam and Eve that day. First of all, there was the death of their innocence before God. It says in verse 7, The eyes of both of them were opened. They knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. When they committed, when they violated God's commandment like this, they, they had a sudden sense of shame and guilt. They suddenly knew evil. They knew that they had done evil. They knew that they had lost their good standing with God. They, they had never felt this way before. They had never felt this sense of shame and, and guilt. And it was awful. And the worst thing was there was no going back. Once they had sinned, there was no going back to that state of, of innocence and perfect fellowship with God that they had experienced there in that garden. They began to feel terrible about what they had done. And they made fig leaves there. Not that there was anything wrong with the human body. But that they, they sensed the shame and the guilt of what they had done. And they wanted to be covered. And worst of all, in verse 8, there was the death of their fellowship with God. And I want you to notice, it says, They heard the sound, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. Well, how did they know that that was the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden? That was because it was something that happened on a regular basis. It was something that happened day after day. They had heard it before. They knew the sound. They knew that sound. And they knew it was the Lord walking in the garden. And then it says, in the cool of the day. And here's a reference really to the, the time of the day when much of the day had passed. Late afternoon, that sort of time. And it says there that Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now listen, listen to me just carefully. Let me kind of bring some of this together. They didn't die physically that day, but something far worse happened that day. They died spiritually. And there was a break in that sweet fellowship that they had had. And, and, the, and the indication, it says there that they, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. And so we have the indication here that, that they had been used to being in the very presence of the Lord God. Some Bible scholars believe, and I think I believe this, that it's a reference here to a Christophany. And that is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ on the earth walking. You know what I think it really is saying here? That they walked with the Lord Jesus every day in that garden. They, they had had sweet fellowship with Him day after day, and now on this day, 
they finally have broken that, that fellowship has been broken because of their sin. James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Listen, this is from the King James Version. I like the way it's worded in the King James. It says, Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. And they began to die physically on that day. They had the prospect of living forever in that wonderful state that they were in. But they began on that day to die. And you can look over in Genesis chapter 5, verse 5. And here's what it says. It says, So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years. That's a long time to live. They were in such a, still in such a perfect environment that he lived 930 years. But the day came when he died. And folks, God's Word, we need to understand this, God's Word always comes true. It may not come true immediately. God says something will happen. We, sometimes we have to wait longer than we would like to wait. Sometimes we're glad that we're having to wait. But God's Word always comes true. When sin is finished, it brings forth death. And something worse even than all of this is that the entire human race was plunged into sin. I want you to turn, and we won't be back in Genesis, so turn with me to the book of Romans. We're going to end up here in Romans chapter 5. When Adam sinned, sin entered the entire human race, and every person after Adam was born with a sin nature, and in the fullness of time, that that person has sinned. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. When Adam sinned, the entire human race was infected with sin. And when you and I were born, we were dead. We were born dead in trespasses and sins. We were, as we said a number of weeks ago in our series on salvation, we were born dead on arrival. We were born with a sin nature. And that ensures that we will sin and that we have sinned and that we're guilty before God. And then in verse 9, and here's where I want to end today in verse 9. It says, Then the Lord God called to Adam, and he said to him, Where are you? He was walking in the garden. God didn't ask that question because he needed knowledge. He knew where Adam and Eve were. He knew right where they were. He asked that question for Adam to be able to to respond and, and to, to answer about where he was. But there's something far more than just a physical presence that's being talked about here. There is a question that God would ask us today, each one of us, and that is, where are we when it comes to sin? If you look down in verse 17 here in Romans 5, it says this, it says, For if by the one man's offense death reigned through one, 
Much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. And let me just give you the shorthand version of what that's saying. It's saying that every person, every one of you, including me, every person is either in Adam or in Christ. We're all born in Adam. We're all sinners. We all have a, 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 a debt of sin that we owe. We all have sin that is part of our lives. The question is whether we transfer from being in Adam to being in Christ. Verse 19 says, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. And so I want to just conclude by asking you. It's a question that, that we all need to ask ourselves. Where are you? Are you in Adam? Are you in Christ today? Because of Adam's sin, we are all sinners. But the question is, what about your sin? Has your sin been forgiven by what Christ did at the cross? Have you come to Him for the salvation it's offered? And if you need to talk about that, we'll have plenty of time as we or together this afternoon in fellowship, I'd be happy to just sit down. If you need a further explanation of that, or if you need to just talk about that, I'd be happy to visit with you uh, till the sun sets today, because it's the most important thing. The paradise was lost on this day when Adam and Eve sinned. And the only way to have any prospect of the hope of heaven is to come to Jesus Christ. Well, let's pray together.